I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The next chapter. Different languages are like different spices. One of the characters says, what if the power goes out? And it does. My goal is to find ways of articulating in writing what it's like to be alive. The next chapter. On CBC Radio 1. And Sirius XM. We're heading into midwinter, or the bleak midwinter, to quote the poet Christina Rossetti. So if you can't quite embrace it, how about survive it? I enjoy hot chocolate and some warm blankets, and if my sons can drag me out of the house, a little bit of ice skating. I also enjoy a large pile of aspirational reading. In a half hour from now, our columnist Alicia Cox Thompson will recommend three titles that I will add to my TBR list. Alicia's theme today is Snowbound, and she brings us a trio of books where winter looms large. To close the program, our contributor Ryan B. Patrick talks with Wahini Vara. Her debut novel, The Immortal King Rao, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and she follows that up with a compelling short story collection called This Is Salvaged. But first, Gary Barwin on migration and imagination. I'm Ali Hassan. Welcome to the next chapter. What do the cosmos, a Mobius strip, and a tree falling in the woods have in common? They're all ways that Gary Barwin explores ideas of infinity and the power of imagination in his new book of essays. Barwin is an acclaimed artist, composer, and educator, and the author of 26 books. He's also a very funny guy. His novel Yiddish for Pirates, narrated by a Yiddish-speaking parrot, won the Leacock Medal for Humor and the Canadian Jewish Literary Award, and was a finalist for a Governor General's Award and the Scotiabank Giller Prize. In his new book, Imagining, Imagining, Essays on Language, Identity, and Infinity, Barwin again combines his razor-sharp wit and keen observation, this time turning inward, reflecting on his family history, questions of legacy, and the very nature of writing itself. Gary Barwin lives in Hamilton, Ontario. He joins me in our Toronto studio. Hi, Gary. Hi. It's really nice to be here. You know, your story is one of uh, international intrigue, we might say. And, and then it ends up in Hamilton, which is not where international intrigue goes to, to thrive. It's where everybody aspires to <laughs> yes, end up. Absolutely. We should know your wife is a, is a criminal lawyer, and she operates out of Hamilton, so... Yeah, we moved there for the crime. <laughs> we, like, absolutely. It's, it, it's really true, yes. <laughs> So you have family roots in Lithuania. It's quite a path here. Lithuania to then South Africa, where your parents are from, to Northern Ireland, where you were born, and finally to Canada. Can you connect those dots for me? How did your family come to live on three different continents? Yeah, because it's part of what I think about in the book is I'm sitting at my desk writing, thinking, here I am, speaking English in Hamilton, Ontario. Mm. How is it that me as a person ended up here. And so my grandparents were from Lithuania, 
and they moved because of uh, the rise of anti-Semitism. They moved to South Africa, which was a place that many Jews from Lithuania went to. It was a place that they were able to go to, that people would accept them. Then when my parents became adults, they wanted to get out of an apartheid place, and so they ended up in Northern Ireland, which then proceeded to have its own problems with the Troubles. And so I I grew up there till I was nine, and then we moved to Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned in your book that uh, political turmoil seems to follow your family like feathers follow a duck. That's that's looking around every corner. Yeah, so far Canada, so so far so good. But uh, But you know, Hamilton, you're not safe. Gary is there. Never never know. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Because if we add Montreal in there, there was some separatist sentiment. Well, well, yeah. In fact, I moved there. I did first year university there, and I was, and I guess thinking through things through that frame that. Things are uncertain, potentially. Things are complicated, and people find themselves negotiating place and history all the time. Well, I I think I really enjoyed the book because I also am fascinated by this. You know, one small decision that somebody made 75 years ago, and all of a sudden we're here talking to each other. Uh, So on this note, you know, and and I really enjoyed this exploration of the theme of home. You know, what is home? And, And obviously you would have a complex relationship with that idea because of your family's migration. And you consider what it means to come from more than one place to have multiple diasporas or diasporas, depending on where you come from. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And, you know, and all the feelings that you have, because, for example, I have South African art made by Africans in my home. And that's complicated. Am I appropriating by, oh, you know, what do I understand the context? But for me, that connects with my grandparents and you know, my parents. And I'm, in a way, it's nostalgia by proxy. So how you, how you put together a sense of connection. I mean, so when I look in my mind, when I imagine home and kind of an imaginative safe space or something, I would imagine like the mountains of Morn where I grew up as a kid, um, mixed in with sort of vague group of seven images kind of thing of Canada. Mm. So I think that's really interesting how we how we find those images. I often think if I was to make a robot that was me, I have to put in all the major historical um, experiences that I've that I've had, but also all those little ones, like when I think about, uh, you know, the water lapping on a Canadian lake or the smell of pine cones or the smell of my pillow freshly washed when I was a kid, like all those little tiny details. The AI of Gary Barwin will, will need <laughs> yeah. to have all that in there. Too. Yeah, but I mean, that's what it is to be like a human in all um, our dimensionality, like yeah. your your sense of sense of uh, self, I think. Sure, and uh, one, another huge dimension is is this idea of uh, of language, right? So, growing up in in Ireland and then suburban Ottawa, which didn't make your list of places that you think or don't think of, <laughs> uh, you were surrounded by uh, Hebrew and and Yiddish books. And again, I had such a connection to that. My father, we had a library of over 10,000 books in you know, Punjabi and Urdu and, and this kind of thing. So, you know, much like myself, you were not really able to read these books in Hebrew and Yiddish, but they still had an impact on you. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think the fact of books, I mean, the fact that they contained culture and knowledge and my grandparents had, my grandfather particularly, had a, a deep connection. He spoke Yiddish, he spoke Hebrew, and he, the idea that he had access to a kind of world, a kind of other knowledge, and a kind of reverence for those books, but also different languages are like different spices. It's not just about the meaning, it's about their aesthetics, about their feeling. And so one of the essays I write about uh, Hebrew and all of the traditions about looking at the shape of the letters and at the letters as 
implicit metaphors for imagining the world, and that really fascinates me. I don't have to know how to say, um, sorry, officer, I didn't realize I was driving so mm -hmm. fast in Hebrew, but I can look at the letters and feel the sense of mystery, of sense of access to knowledge, a sense of inspire, just the shape of the letters themselves inspire mm. imagination. Um, there's a Hebrew letter that is an imagined letter. They imagine they know what it looks like, but they don't know what it sounds like. And the idea is if you were able to uh, know how to pronounce the letter, you would solve the world. You would heal the world. And okay, there's a metaphor as a writer, oh, wow. you know, as a user of language that is so captivating. As a, as a young boy, I was forced to go to Sunday school, Muslim Sunday school, where I learned to read Arabic and again, recognize letters, put words together, have no idea what the words mean. Right. It was just the idea of, you know, making parents happy. You'll be able to read this holy book in, yeah. in its, you know, native. And only years later, like yourself, I reflect on these things and I go, man, it's like this whole world that I had access to. All the people who speak this language and the history of this alphabet. You know, I was like, what a lost opportunity for me as a, as a rebellious young boy who was like, trying to find excuses to not attend the school. Yeah, but but you absorb that in a deep way, perhaps before you're conscious of, of yes. it, I think, which is really interesting. And also, I would say, and maybe you had this experience with um, chanting. I mean, I listening to Hebrew chanting when I would go, not that I went to synagogue a lot, but they were very powerful experiences because it was a very different space. And it was this mysterious, arcane thing, and, and the music wasn't organized in the same way, and the scales were different, and it was also um, evocative, really um, numinous. It really evoked the possibility of being outside of um, the normal, I guess, out, and outside of, outside of mainstream culture. And to think, so really, to me, it led me to thinking about the other, thinking about what it is to think of other ways of being in the world and uh, alternatives. And that for me, that unlocked a lot. And listening to that music, preparing for my bar mitzvah, and then I also started saxophone at the same time. I started saxophone because I thought I'd get girls. That was my idea. I'd be up there playing saxophone and be all these Valerie Bertinelli lookalikes in the, in the audience. Never happened. But what did happen was I got interested in the music. And I, I particularly like John Coltrane and many of his explorations of non-Western traditions. It was like a window, a portal into experiencing the world in a different way, the possibility of imagining other lives and other people and other ways of um, thinking about the world. It's a quick recovery from Eddie Van Halen stealing your, <laughs> yeah. your lady, your girl. You also speak about the absence of language and, and the, how that can speak volumes. When you were a kid, your grandparents never talked about Lithuania, which was, you know, as you mm -hmm. say, your, their homeland. Many members of their families had been killed there during the Holocaust. Looking back, what did their uh, what did their silence say to you? Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes there are things that are so distressing or so um, the absence and the and the horror that happened. It was so hard to put into words. And I think also the kind of complexity of survivors' guilt. They left earlier. Um, than, than the Holocaust, and then everything was destroyed, 95% of the Jewish population in Lithuania. And so what counts as a survivor of the Holocaust, we tend to think of it in Jewish culture as somebody who's actually, actually been in a camp. But on the other hand, so my grandparents, their parents, their siblings, their whole worlds were destroyed. And I don't ever think that they found language or found an under way of understanding that. What my grandfather, however, spent his time looking for family members. This is before the internet, so it was considerably harder. And in fact, he eventually found uh, his nephew uh, living in Chicago years later and, and connected with him. 
So it was definitely something that haunted his life, mm-hmm. even if he wasn't able to speak about it. And this grandfather, is, is he the same one who spoke at your wedding? Um, yes, that's yeah. right. So I got married in 1987, beginning of having video cameras at weddings. And so the, the camera guy you know, wanted him to speak. And so my grandfather started with his kind of usual jokey, like, I would like to address the nation. And he yeah. started all this kind of, you know, funny stuff. But then he looked at the camera and with a kind of intensity that I, I'd never seen from him, he just, he spoke through the Holocaust. It's the only time I heard him directly saying, you know, we grew up with Lithuanians for hundreds of years and, you know, we lived beside them and they betrayed us. And the, the, the look on his, in his face wasn't so much what he said, but the, that look, it was, like, again, a window into his deep sadness and deep, um, deep hurt. And that always did haunt me to think about what is that legacy and what did, what did it mean that, that, that this is my family's experience that ended up with me here in Canada. Mm-hmm. Your, your grandfather is a recurring presence in this book. Yes. You describe him as a witty intellectual. Uh, he spoke seven languages at the very least. Yes. Often laughed at his own jokes. Uh, what influence did he have on you? Yeah, my, my mom said that he was a self-made man who loved his creator. That was, that was, <laughs> that was a very good line. Um, when I was a young teenager, I spent a lot of time with him. I, I used to go over and we'd listen to music and we'd talk about books. And it was a huge influence both in terms of his introduction to that. But I think the most important thing was that he took me seriously. Like for me as a, you know, precocious sort of rather uh, nerdy 12-year-old, it was they were amazing. And we used to go to the library together and we'd spend time in his library. And my grandmother was there as a quieter presence. She was there doing many of the same things but just quiet. She, I don't think she got a chance to talk until he died, and then she was able to say all the things she was thinking. Um, so for me, that was, a, that was really a big influence, that um, we could talk about culture, we could talk about—and there's a sense of—I guess a sense of history, too, that he had the Hebrew books, he had the Yiddish books, and he really was thinking back about his past and would talk about it, um, not directly about Lithuania, but certainly about Jewish history, about, about history in general, about thinking about kind of what is culture and how do we, how do we fit into culture. Mm-hmm. I don't, this being, he grew up as a working class, he grew up the son of a blacksmith. And just the idea of learning and of knowledge and of the possibility of culture was really uh, inspiring to him. And that was really influential to me. Mm-hmm. Humor is also, you know, something that seems essential for you, certainly, and, and, and seems to be a, a theme in this book with, with different generations. And this, this new book includes an adaptation of an acceptance speech that you, uh, that you gave for, uh, when you won the Leacock Medal. And in that, you called humor one of our great technologies. Tell me what makes humor so powerful in your mind. I do think it's one of our great technologies. I think that it does so many different things. It, I mean, it, obviously, it helps us get through adversity. I think primarily humor, um, it gives you agency. If you can tell the story of something, no matter how bad the situation is, if, you can, if you're telling a joke about it, humor, it's, you're the center of that story. You're taking control of the agenda. And also, I think that you, then you're also presupposing a community. You're not alone because you're thinking if you're going to tell a joke, you're imagining telling it to somebody. So it is, a, it is about connection in that way. So, I mean, that, those are powerful things, having agency, having connection, uh, as well as, I mean, I think it's like a philosophical system. We may not understand how things work. Things may be absurd and difficult and frightening, but somehow if we can find them funny, it, it gives us a way to contend with them, a way to manage meaninglessness, a way to manage difficulty, I think. 
it, it, there's a rebellious uh, element mm. to it too. You described it in your book as a socially sanctioned dissent. Yeah, oh, that's a line from Drew Hayden Taylor who talks about that. And we've actually had some interesting talks, uh, Drew and I, about the connection between Jewish humor and indigenous humor. And what I think is it's about speaking truth to power. So when you're in your your othered or you're in a situation where you have less power, it's a way of speaking to a larger system and pulling the rug from under the received notions. So I think it surprises you. It, it tells something from an unexpected perspective, perhaps. And so I feel that, that is a, it is a very powerful, refreshing and energizing and subversive act. Sure. You also talk to this idea of the evolution of, of somebody's humor. You know, your brand of humor has changed. You used to be more cynical, you said, and now you're, quote, uh, post-ironic, which I found <laughs> yes. very, very funny. What, what do you think brought that about? You know, I mean, so, so, you know, why as a young person was I was I ironic? Was I cynical? I guess because it's kind of cooler to be to question things. You know, it's, it, it's a simple it's, in a way, it's a simplistic response to you see the world isn't the way you, you want it to be. So you can just be cynical and be kind of make fun of it. But the next level is how can you think how can you think to some sort of, I don't know, healing, some sort of reconciliation with What's happening? Not to not to wrap it up in a bow and say this is it's all it's all fine, but to actually value things in the world. I mean, value communication, value living with negative capability, living with uncertainty. So, I mean, I think that for me, that 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 kind of sense of community, sense of drawing people in, sense of of helping in some way, sense of healing, even through difficult and unresolvable issues. I I think that as as a more mature person, certainly more mature. Well, more mature than I was when I was a teenager, let's say, um, that I found that that's something in my in my work that I do want to do, which is not just not just to make fun of things, not just to not believe in things. I think it takes more courage to believe in things, to stand by things. Mm-hmm. We were talking earlier about the immigrant experience and what it means to be home. For the past 32 years, your home has been Hamilton, Ontario. You've raised your family there uh, you walk your dog uh, in, in, in the woods at night. I, I won't mention which woods in case your enemies are <laughs> looking for you. That's right. I, I can't imagine it was the life that you imagined for yourself. You didn't know what the future held, but do you feel rooted in this place? I do. Um, one of my sons used to say, oh, yeah, Dad, if you didn't have us, you'd be in a, you'd be in a garret in Manhattan being, you know. Mm. And <laughs> maybe I might have imagined myself at some point, but... You know, it's interesting that you find yourself in a place, and um, again, it connects to all all these other places. I am able to go walking in the woods at night and think about my place in the world. How is it that I got there? And I don't know what I guess I imagined, but part of I think living is to be able to see what happens and um, what what does one want in a place? You want security, you want a place for your family, you want friends, and you want culture, and all of that is there. And I guess I believe in also in somewhat making your own culture. Wherever you are, you you make those connections. You find meaning. You you create the create the city that you want. You get involved in things. And in your own words, you know your life fits you like a puddle, uh, which which paints an interesting <laughs> picture. But uh, but when going you back look to the at, duck, yeah, going back to the duck. When you exactly when you when you think of it like that, I mean, you'll find home. Wherever, uh, you know. Yeah, you only need as much water for the puddle as, as yeah. 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 Uh, and it does amaze me. I mean, in a really simplistic way, it's like I'm walking my dog in the middle of the night and I'm looking at the moon and it's like, 
the moon. What a what an amazing thing! I get to walk under this like incredibly beautiful, bright silver thing, and and like those basic things just sort of seem constant revelations to me. And not to be too um, twee about it, but it's kind of remarkable to be alive and to be able to perceive these things and to be able to think about them. And I have a, a great privilege that I have the life security that I'm able to. Gary, it's very nice to talk to you today. Yeah, thanks very much. Nice to talk to you. Gary Barwin is the author of Imagining, Imagining, and he was with me in Toronto. Boy Golden. I write and record songs with my friends, and we do it in Winnipeg, where I live. Right now, I just finished reading 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and it might be one of the best books I've ever read. It's a book basically telling the story of seven generations of the Buendia family, who founded the fictitious town of Macondo, and Right from the get-go, as soon as you start reading it, the pace of the book just takes you on on this, like, magical journey that doesn't put you down. I found the style of writing to be super compelling because it doesn't have a traditional plot, like, in the sense that there's, like, rising action, climax, release, that sort of thing. It feels like every page has a bit of that, and it moves through over a hundred years and seven generations of this family. And it ends up being this meditation on like life and death and love and uh, art and science and just really takes you through the pace of, of how quickly things change and how also things stay the same, which is one of my favorite things to think about how uh, time is less linear than we think. In my opinion, I think it's more of a circular spiraling sort of thing. Uh, which you really do notice in this book. I think this book is like a must. It's a must read. It's a really thick book and it's and it's very dense, but it's not a tough read at all, in, in my opinion, especially because it has this element of magical realism to it where uh, just like incredible things just sort of happen. And I think what that does for me is it just reminds me that Incredible things happen in our world as well, and you have to just be paying attention to notice them and to appreciate them as the magical things that they are. That was Winnipeg musician Boy Golden. We'll be back after these messages. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. There's summer reading and beach reading and holiday reading, but that kind of reading is for amateurs. Sure, it's easy to crack a book when the sun shines until midnight or so, 
But how about when those days are long and dark and carbs and true crime TV are calling your name? Put those temptations aside, says Alicia Cox Thompson, because she's with me now to share three titles for winter reading. Snowbound is the theme. Hello, Alicia. Welcome to the next chapter. Hello, Ali. Thank you. So you are a year-round reader, but what are the particular pleasures of deep winter reading for you? For me, deep winter reading requires something a bit more like weighty. I want to read something with a little bit more depth, something I could sink into and be cozy with. So I'm looking for things that are, you know, a little bit different than a lighter summer read. Sure. A warm, heavy blanket and a warm, heavy book. Yes. Perfect. (laughs) Weigh me down. You chose the theme Snowbound for today. Um, Would you consider yourself a a lover of winter? (laughs) Um, Yes and no. (laughs) I prefer being cold to hot, so I would say I prefer colder weather, but I prefer the vibes of summer, the freedom Mm. of summer. So I I think I'm a moderate weather person. I'm a spring and fall person. Spring and fall. And so these the the reading helps you cope with the winter. Yes, yes. Um, so how do you see that theme of snowbound working in the in the books that you plan to recommend today? So the snow in these books acts like a character almost. It drives the narrative. It really changes things in each of these books and changes the lives of the characters in ways that, as readers, you won't always expect. All right. Let's talk about the first snowbound book that you've brought today. What is it? Uh, Moon of the Crested Snow mm-hmm. by Bob Shig Rice. So, yes, Wob, uh, many people will know, was a, a CBC host for many years and has left that to become an author. Uh, tell me about this book. What happens on this uh, reserve that uh, that Wob has imagined here? Yes. So, Moon of the Crested Snow, it's a, a chilling post-apocalyptic literary thriller set on um, a small Anishinaabe reserve in northern Ontario. Winter is coming, and our protagonist is the father of two young kids. He's out shooting moose to prepare for the winter. The power has gone out. The satellite TV is out. The cell phone signals are out. So this small reserve is isolated. They know something's going on because they can't hear anything from the mainland or the towns, which are about you know, 300 kilometers south of where they are. So they kind of hunker down and they hope for the best. Uh, winter arrives with a massive blizzard, and while the band council is prepared for a few months with food and gas for the generators, things uh, do quickly run out. Um, all the sort of reserves start to dwindle. A newcomer arrives, which changes everything in this small town, and you kind of have to bear with everybody as they deal with this blizzard. All right. You know, unless you're a, a winter-loving person, and I have been and then I have not been as well, for many people, winter feels like a it's got an end-of-the-world dystopian vibe to begin with. How does Wab Rice use winter or and or snow mm-hmm. to create suspense and, and, and isolation in, in this book? The, the language he uses is really stark, and I, it's a short kind of fast read. It's really gripping, even though it's also kind of slowly happening. The snow is coming. It's not a long book, so I find that he writes sparingly, but with such energy that it's really enthralling. I read it in one fell swoop. I sat there, mm-hmm. read the whole thing one day, um, and the snow in the book is really... Uh, eerie and heavy, and it kills. And uh, he does a really great job with that kind of language. 
And apparently he has a sequel that has just come out to this book. What what do you know about that? Mm -hmm. So, yes, the sequel came out in October, last October. It's called Moon of the Turning Leaves. And apparently he wrote it because so many people asked him what happened at the end of Moon of the Crusted Snow. I myself had that question. I also wanted more. So um, while I have not read it yet, I have it on hold at my library. So apparently it takes place 12 years after the first book. So that's the price Wob has to pay for his sparing work. Words, his economy yes. of words. You're like, more words, Wob. More words. Uh, what is the next book on your list? The next book on my list is Last Winter by Carrie Mack. All right. How does the snow shape the story in Last Winter? So Last Winter is a different novel uh, than Moon of the Crested Snow, which I mentioned is a post-apocalyptic type of thriller. Last Winter is an emotional, heart-wrenching read. Uh, It's set in a small mountain town in northern British Columbia where they are dealing with the aftermath of a fatal avalanche. That sounds like uh, an unhappy family story. Yes. And uh, that said, unhappy families do give writers a lot of uh, a lot of material to work with. So, what are the themes that Carrie Mack deals with in, in Last Winter? So, the story is told from the point of view of um, two women. Well, one a young girl and one a woman. A woman named Fiona Tenner and her daughter Ruby. Now, the avalanche that I mentioned sadly kills five children from this town and Gus is missing in this avalanche. So you're hearing about the aftermath of the avalanche and how Fiona and Ruby are dealing with it as mother and daughter and you're also hearing about the lead up to the blizzard or sorry to the avalanche um, and how Gus and Fiona's marriage is fractured. Um, I do have a trigger warning that I wanted to say. Mm. Uh, The book delves really deeply into issues of mental illness. Uh, Fiona has bipolar disorder and she does struggle greatly throughout the novel. There's talk of self-harm and death by suicide. And uh, I just want to give that warning to people to, you know, protect their hearts if that's sure. something that's important to them. You know, we've been we've been talking about snow and winter as, as you know, dangerous and, and um, you know, deathly in, in some cases. But, but both are also, they can be a gift to Canadian writers, northern writers in particular. Mm-hmm. And for Canadians, whether we like it or not, it's in most of our, our DNA. What do you think about that? I agree. You know, as someone who, you know, has grown up here, but has uh, a whole side of my family who immigrated from a Caribbean island, (laughs) it's something that I've always kind of struggled with. I love winter. It's in my DNA. And I love the idea of playing in the snow and being an outdoorsy person. But uh, it is something that I think maybe lots of Canadians struggle with the idea of when it's really wind chilly cold, leaving your house. I don't know if anyone wants to do that. <laughs> sure. If you have other, um, you know, pre-existing issues, the, the winter can only, you know, compound them. We should mention also uh, last winter, a national bestseller. Yes. Yeah. And Carrie Mack is a Canadian writer. And um, yeah, it's wonderful to support Canadian writers. All right. Let's talk about the final book on your list. The final book on my list is uh, Departure from the First Two in that it's uh, it's got more pulp and camp and it's more of a mainstream snowbound thriller. It's called The Writing Retreat by American author Julia Bartz. It came out about a year ago. Okay, so does winter take a, a dark turn in this uh, in this book as well? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, this is one of my favorite thrillers of 2023, and I always describe it as delightfully bonkers. It, it starts out pretty traditionally. You're setting up the premise of uh, this young woman, Alex, who is an aspiring author. Uh, she's, you know, toiling away at a publishing company. She doesn't care about it, and she's unhappy and uninspired. She's had a falling out with her former best friend, and that falling out right at the beginning is couched in mystery and some blood. You're not sure what happened Mm -hmm. between these friends, but there was blood involved and their friendship ended abruptly. 
They both get uh, into a writing retreat with an author named Rosa Vallow, who's a really fascinating character in this book. So they go up to her estate and they uh, join the writing retreat and lots of things ensue. I don't want to spoil too much, but I will say that the snow comes. <laughs> yeah. How does uh, how does Julia Bartz use the uh, use the weather to to create the the danger? Are you able to say that without ruining yes, anything? Yes, yes, I can say that. So they're they're at this uh, you know spooky old estate called Blackbriar Estate up in um, upstate New York, and it's the middle of winter, so a blizzard comes. They're very rural and isolated. There's a bit of a Chekhov's gun moment in earlier in the book. One of the characters says, "What if the power goes out?" And it does. Mm-hmm. Power goes out. Blizzard comes. They're isolated, and that's the final third of the book, and that's when things really speed up and things uh, start happening. People die and uh, there's a lot going on, but it's a really great fun read. Okay. So tell me, besides the snow and ice in these these novels that you've picked today, do you see that snowbound theme working in other ways? Yes, absolutely. You know, there's a theme of survival throughout all of these books, um, whether that's literal physical survival, running from an avalanche, trying to survive isolation or murder. <laughs> there's also an undercurrent through all of them about grief. And so in Moon in the Crusted Snow, there's different types of grief that is experienced. I don't want to spoil anything, but um, there's grief of loved ones. There's grief of a way of life, loss of a way of life. In Last Winter, there is physical grief of losing a parent or a husband, no matter how fraught your relationship is. And the town itself is grieving. In The Writing Retreat, which, like I said, is a little bit more pulpy in camp, there is still grief going on. Alex is grieving her relationship. And all of the writers, who are all women, are trying to birth these books. And they're they're sort of grieving the books they thought they were going to write at The Writing Retreat because they have to write brand new books. So it's like an artistic kind of creative grief, mm. which I just... You know, trying to find a through line through these books with the snow, but other things as well. It's always fascinating how you can pick apart uh, different types of stories to find connections. You know, it's interesting. My last question for you, Alicia, I want to ask, you know, when the pandemic was happening, I remember not wanting to watch any movies about (laughs) like, you know, get contagion away from me, get these movies. But with winter, it's an interesting thing that reading about winter can help you get through winter. Why why do you think that is? You know, I think in the case with Snowbound, uh, with their theme here, it's like you could feel the danger. A lot of the writers that I speak about, they really have a skill with that that sort of suffocating, terrifying aspect of the snow. And so reading that while you're safe and cozy is thrilling. You get a little bit of taste of that thrill of the scary part of winter mm. while you're enjoying the cozy part of winter. <laughs> sure. And if you have no uh, death knocking at your door, you're like, oh, things could be worse. And exactly. they're not. Exactly. <laughs> yes. It's not the end of the world. It's not. Thank you very Although it certainly does feel like that on some days, depending <laughs> on where you are. Thanks for this, Alicia. Thank you. Alicia Cox-Thompson is a journalist who writes about books for Chatelaine. The three books she recommended today are on our website, cbc.ca slash the next chapter. Wahini Vara has worked as a journalist on the technology and business beats. Her debut novel, The Immortal King Rao, was a finalist for the 2023 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. It's a sweeping family story that examines big global issues through the lens of a tech guru and the daughter who grapples with his legacy. Vahini's latest story collection takes a more intimate turn. 
In This is Salvaged, we zoom in on a cast of characters negotiating loneliness, loss, and connection. Wahini was born in Regina and grew up in Prince Albert before moving to the U.S., and she spoke with our contributor, Ryan B. Patrick, from her home in Colorado. Wahini, hello. Welcome to the next chapter. How's it going? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Amazing. I'm excited for this conversation because I appreciated your debut novel, which was The Immortal King Rail. But now you're back with this new story collection. It's called This is Salvaged. And it kind of shifts gears a bit in terms of telling intimate tales of grief and connection between women and girls. So why that shift? Why did you shift tonally in terms of storytelling and genre? So it's funny, I actually started some of the stories in this collection before I started my novel. And this the stories in this collection, I think, reflect more the kind of mode in which I was writing when I was starting to become a writer. Um, and then I, I switched gears and started working on my novel. And then at some point was working on both at the, for a long period, was working on both at the same time. And so although the novel came out first and the stories came out after, I was sort of working on both of them uh, simultaneously. And I think they were feeding different things for me. In some ways, I think of them as having similar subject matter, even though it's not necessarily visible on the on the level of the sentence. You know, they're all about they're both about connection among people, the desire for connection and the difficulty of establishing and maintaining that. But whereas the novel sort of like looking at this from a bigger kind of systems perspective, the stories are looking at it more intimately um, on, as you said, on kind of on the level of individuals and their relationships. Um I love both ways of writing and I sort of all everything I write is different, I think, because I'm interested in figuring out like what the form is that any particular piece of writing requires. And so for the for my novel, The Immortal King Rao, like that felt like it demanded this sort of big systems like approach, Um, whereas with the stories, they demanded something different. And so I approached them both differently. So you mentioned you actually started writing the stories for this collection, This is Salvage, back in around 2008. The themes are like grief and disconnection and whatnot. What was going on in your life at the time? I started writing in earnest in college. My sister passed away my freshman year of college um, when I mm. was uh, 18 and she was 20. And it was obviously like a just a devastating and formative experience and I you know like anybody who goes through something like that like I didn't have the words to articulate what was even happening I felt like and and so I took I took the spring off from college I I was home for the summer and then I went back in the fall and that was the time that was when I took my first creative writing class um I went to school at Stanford and um, Stanford has this program called the Stegner Fellowship Program, which is a kind of postgraduate program for writers. And then the people going through that program end up teaching classes at Stanford. And so my first writing instructor was this writer, Adam Johnson, who at the time was just coming out with his first collection of stories, but he would end up later winning the Pulitzer Prize and becoming a permanent faculty member at Stanford. Mm. But this was like his first creative writing class ever. And he was my teacher. And was a a really inspiring teacher and sort of helped me find the tools and I helped myself find the tools through that class to like articulate something about the grief that I was going through and what it had meant to be my sister's sister and lose her 
in a way that like I had had trouble doing earlier. And so it kind of opened something up for me, not just as a writer, but as a human. And I think that's when writing started to to become really important in my life because not just, not just for professional reasons, but because it was allowing me to do something just as a person in the world that I wasn't otherwise able to do. Um, That was in 2001. And so although the stories in this collection that are the oldest were written starting in like 2008 or so. I think because my formative years as a writer were so bound up with, with grief and with my loss of my sister Mm. um, and with family, I think those themes just ended up being so deeply ingrained in my writing in general, such that even now, you know, 20 years later, if I sit down to write a story, like there's a way in which that DNA is still in there somewhere. Right. Uh, so would it be fair to say that this is salvaged? Um, so it features stories of grief and processing death. Was it something that allowed you to work through what you were going through personally at the time? Would that be fair to say? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think in mental health circles, it's very accepted that mm-hmm. writing can be a way to process what people are going through. But when you're a professional writer, there's a stigma, I think, against saying like, yeah, I wrote these stories partly as a way to process what I was going through. But the truth is that Yes, they did. Um, these stories, writing in general, like does does serve that function for me. Right. So the collection is very slim, uh, very short, but it's very stark. And it opens with the uh, short story, The Irates. And it's a really fascinating short story about a teen girl who's still processing the death of a family member. And she gets caught up along with her best friend in an unsavory employment telemarketer situation. How, how does this story effectively set the tone for the other stories to follow? I love that story. Um, So it's about these two teenage girls. The older brother of the protagonist has died, but the other teenage girl, her best friend, was also close with with this brother. And they are just very rawly processing what just happened. Barely processing it, really. Processing isn't even the right word. They're just sort of in the wake of what happened. And trying to figure out a way to kind of continue to live in the wake of this big sort of tsunami event in their lives and really struggling to do so. I put that story first in part because um, it does sort of establish um, that this is a collection in part about big sort of formative losses, whether it's a death or, or, or other um, other forms of losses. But mm. then also, as the collection progresses, the characters in subsequent stories, I think, are further along in their ability to, to deal with these big things that happen to them. So I, I, I liked having this story first, because as you know from having read it, I won't give any spoilers, but... Yeah. Like, by the end of the story, these characters still aren't quite okay. They've just no. sort of decided, okay, well here we are in the world. And so we have to figure out how to live in it, but they haven't quite come up with a path toward doing that effectively. And I, I wanted the, the collection itself to feel like it embodied a kind of progression in understanding from, from beginning to end, even though it deals with different characters. Yeah. And I like that you explore the fact that grief is messy. Um, And I noticed there's some sensory details around smell, which are highlighted in a lot of stories, like the icky smell of something rotting or something blooming. You mentioned flowers spurting, (laughs) Um, something fragrant. Was this an intentional choice? No, it was not. And it's funny because the first kind of long form review of my store of my collection that came out um, was in High Country News by the critic Hannah Rivers. And that review was all about sort of like the grotesque in the collections and not just smells, but sort of 
bodily functions mm. and grossness. And I read that and was like, huh, yeah, I guess I guess the stories do do that. It was one of those funny experiences where I had to be told that my stories were doing that in order to recognize <laughs> that they were, um, which surprises people because I think it, it reads as a very prominent feature of the collection. Um, thinking critically about what I might have been doing there leads me down a couple of different alleys. Um, one thing I think about is the way in which the collection is about the kind of borders between self and other, right? Like between the self and the outside world, whether that's other people or the natural world, and the way in which those borders can be actually somewhat porous. And so to the extent that like things like bodily functions and the smells that people emit um, and the way in which um, those things can transfer from one person to another or from the outside world felt like a way to make very physical and kind of sensory that fact. I think also because the story collection is a lot about loss in various forms. It's not just all about death, but about mm -hmm. loss in various forms, I think kind of like sensory grotesqueness felt to me like a very apt way to talk about like what it feels like to be in a body that has experienced loss and still has to figure out how to function in the world, you know? And so I think I, none of this was, um, was conscious for me. I think like all of this was taking place on a subconscious level as I was writing, but it's very clear to me looking back on the collection <laughs> that that's what's happening. Yeah. So let's take a, a quick step away from smells and death and whatnot. Let's talk about your formative years. You were born in Regina, raised in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. Uh, I understand that you were a fixture in the local libraries reading books there. <laughs> when did a love of storytelling begin for you? I was a kid who had a mom who loved telling stories, like not just reading stories, but like telling stories nonstop about her childhood and her teenage years and her young adulthood. Um, and I, we were really close. So anytime I was with my mom, you know, I'd be like sitting on the ground in the kitchen, like helping her cook, quote unquote, helping her cook, you know, like she'd give me some <laughs> garlic to pound with a mortar and pestle or something like that. And she would just be like telling these long, rambling, great stories. And I think that's where my love of storytelling started. But then I also like I loved to read from a really young age. And, and you're right, I would be at that Prince Albert public library, just like combing through the stacks, bringing home huge piles of books. Um, I was there all the time. And I think um, that is what really cemented my love for for like storytelling in the in the visual and the textual form. I'm fascinated by the fact that you've looked at the issue of death and loss at so many different angles. And in the book, um, This is Salvage, stories like the hormone hypothesis that reflects on death and losing a loved one. I want to talk about this story, The 18 Girls. It's such a quirky, uh, icky story. It yeah. involves <laughs> the ashes of a loved one and what another character does with these ashes. I don't want to give too much away, but what inspired this story? So I wrote that story when I was about... I started writing that story when I was about 30 and I was thinking around that time of the way one's own identity sort of simultaneously feels continuous from birth through childhood through adulthood and discontinuous. I think especially as you become an adult, um, like a sort of fully fledged adult, which I think mm. happens around the age of 30, you can look back at the five-year-old version of yourself and 
that version of yourself simultaneously feels like the same person that you are at 30 and yeah. like a different person entirely, right? Such that you might even think about that person like in, in the third person. And I was thinking about like what it would look like to represent that on the page, to represent that fact in writing. And that's what I was doing in that story. So the way it's called the 18 girls and the way in which the story is laid out is that it refers to the first girl and then the second girl and then the third girl. And there's a pair, there's a section break. There's white space between each of the girls stories. And as you read, you come to understand that this is actually the same person at different years of their life. And it was a kind of like formal experiment to try to convey on the page what that that sort of simultaneous continuity and discontinuity is like. And that's why I decided to tell it that way. And this is also a story about sisterhood, about loss. It's a very personal story for me. And so I think it also contends with the way in which like our identities are changed by our loved ones, by identity isn't sort of fixed within one body. Yeah. So uh, Wahini, this is Salvage, is essentially about grief and how death forever changes the living. It's, it's also about how the world expects us to grieve and then move on, but we often can't. Is that a takeaway that you want people to kind of get from this uh, collection? I think a lot of people write with the desire to get something across, right? Like the mm. desire to get some kind of message or meaning across or to be read in a certain way. And I tend not to write with that in mind. Like, I don't know that I have a goal with respect to what people take away from my work. And so for me, um, my goal is something fairly simple, which is just to find ways of articulating in writing what it's like to be alive. And then some of the magic, I think, of being a writer is in the fact that anyone who picks up a story of mine or a book of mine is going to read it and take away something totally different because there's a kind of melding of my consciousness with the consciousness of the reader and a kind of like co-invention, actually, of the text that takes place. It has something to do, obviously, with my consciousness, but in some ways it has just as much, if not more, to do with that of the person reading something. And I find mm. that so interesting, and I, I, I honor that. Well, Haney, thanks for the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. That was Ryan B. Patrick in conversation with Wahini Vara. Her latest book is a collection of short stories entitled This is Salvaged. And that is it for today's program. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews and Trevor Carter. And my thanks this week to Katie Swales, Emily Chiarvesio, Olivia Pasquarelli, Joseph Shamoon, and to the CBC Books digital team. Coming up next week, we start our lead up to Canada Reads with a series of author and panelist interviews. First up, we bring together Carly Fortune, the author of Meet Me at the Lake, with style and fashion influencer Myrian Enjo. Myrian will be championing Carly's book in the upcoming Canada Reads debates. I'm Ali Hassan. Thank you for listening to the next chapter. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.